we always joke, you know, uh, strong opinions weekly helps, right? Like, I think this is the greatest company in the world. I'm going to recommend it at investment committee. I'm going to write a memorandum about it until somebody tells me otherwise. And then I'm going to listen to that. And even if I've spent two weeks of my life diving into this company, if I really agree with that statement, I need to be able to drop on a, on a dime and cut bait. I think one of the things we've gotten better at over the years is cutting bait quickly and, you know, doing it respectfully with the entrepreneurs. That's a really important, important thing too. And, you know, putting the, putting the entrepreneur, you know, first and, and, and we're not perfect by stretch of the imagination. And what we've learned, if you focused on the success of the entrepreneurs and empowering them, you know, typically everything else can fall into place over time. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode on the Fort I'm really excited to have Aaron Block and Zach Ahrens with me today, who are the co-founders of Metaprop VC. Metaprop is the most active early stage real estate and prop tech investor globally with 125 plus prop tech investments. And their capital partners are a cross section of blue chip real estate firms who represent the largest consortium of early adopters and technology enthusiasts in the industry. We have an awesome conversation. We talk about the story of Zach and Aaron meeting each other and the idea to create Metaprop. We talk about kind of the emergence of PropTech as an investable asset class. It wasn't too long ago that PropTech really wasn't a thing. We talk about the processes that Metaprop goes through for identifying and investing in companies, what early stage founders do really well when building and raising capital for their business, the value that Metaprop looks to bring to their portfolio companies and how they do it. We talk about prop tech companies they are seeing that are emerging and what asset classes are receiving the most attention and capital investment, how prop tech will influence a post-COVID world, and a lot more. Thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. Zach, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Can y'all give me a little bit of background on y'all's story kind of growing up and then what led y'all to become partners at Metaprop? Yeah. Zach, you want to start with your story? It's far more interesting. It's certainly more interesting. I love it. Of course, I will start with it. Thank you, Aaron. My personal background, I, I grew up in New York City. And uh, my uh, dad was in the real estate business for as long as I can remember. He was uh, originally on the public side. He, he ran an organization when I, when I was born. He was still running it called, at that point called the PDC, which then became and the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which is a, a sort of private entity that controls all uh, public-private real estate partnerships. Um, and then he went to do uh, real estate at General Atlantic you know, when they were still doing it in the, in the private sector uh, around the time when I was first sort of becoming cognizant of what business was and, you know, what what my parents did for a living and, and all that stuff. So so I got exposed to real estate from a very, very young age. They were doing primarily affordable housing developments uh, around New York City. And I got to do things like go, you know, visit the job site and put on a hard hat and, and, and boots at at very young age, you know, I remember being you know, seven years old. They probably wouldn't let you do this now, but being seven years old, get to get to go up in a hoist and just feeling really special, feeling a sort of connection to to real estate and and, and that world. I went to uh, Brown undergrad and then went into banking for a little bit. Didn't didn't think I wanted to do real estate professionally, although I always liked it. Then after that, I I was also interested in travel and tourism. So I got an opportunity to, uh, uh, to run and partner with an old friend of mine, a travel and tourism technology startup. And that was called Travel Goat. And that was my first sort of experience to uh, entrepreneurship and uh, the New York sort of technology ecosystem, which back then, this was around 2007, 2008. Uh, you had companies like Etsy, 
launching. You had companies like Foursquare launching in 2009. So there was definitely a, a vibe starting to go on in New York. And, and, and I knew I wanted to be part of that. I ran that business for a while. I had a great time doing it. I became a walking tour guide and led hundreds of, of, of tours around New York City. I actually, funnily enough, we, we had Aaron, I'll tell you more about it, but we had our, our, our company outing uh, yesterday. And I actually, as one of our safe, socially distanced activities, I, uh, I led a walking tour of the West Village, which was one of my favorite uh, neighborhoods to do uh, for the whole uh, Metaprop team. I did that for a while. I couldn't scale a business, though. I really could never build the type of technology that I wanted to build. So uh, I made a difficult decision to kind of step away from it. And then I started just leveraging my skills differently. So I started b- becoming a consultant for different companies and then also angel investing on on the side in, in similar types of businesses. Entrepreneurs who are building technology mainly on mobile for travel and tourism that, that I could sort of only dream of, of, of doing myself. And, and so I figured, well, instead of spending all this money trying to develop technology myself, why don't I just, just invest in entrepreneurs who I think are more skilled at that? So I started you know, dabbling in, in angel investing in the, in the New York tech scene um, and then simultaneously started doing consulting work. My dad actually, in, in, in 2011, he wrote me into one of his real estate projects to do some consulting work. I used to, when I was still running Travel Goat, the, uh, the, the walking tour, the, the travel technology business, I did a lot of sort of growth hacking online. I, I, I did TripAdvisor, I did Facebook, and I did marketing on social platforms before that was ubiquitous. And so my dad had this thesis that, that sort of social media and content marketing was going to become increasingly important in real estate. And so he brought me in to do that uh, initially for one specific project in, in Los Angeles. So I kind of got into real estate that way in a, in a, in a quasi-circuitous way, even though, as I mentioned, I'd been exposed to it my whole life. And then I fell in love with it. I started you know, doing things in real estate that related to other categories than marketing. So they had me starting to do property management work. I started to do some leasing work. I started to do some entitlement and development work. I started working with architects and lawyers and consultants and all the people, you know, and tenants and, and all the sort of people that, that that real estate professionals get get the privilege to interact with. I started seeing all these issues and I, and, and I, I realized that it was the right time to, to start investing in it and leverage my the connections I'd made uh, in the New York startup world and, and start investing in what we now call PropTech instead of having a, a, a sort of less focused approach, uh, doing some travel and tourism tech investments and, and things like that. And, and um, I had a, a business school professor who's now uh, on our advisory board. And he's a longtime venture capitalist in New York named Stu Elman. His, his firm's called RRE Ventures. I, I came to him with, a, with an idea for a topic that I wanted to cover. And he said, you know, you have a unique uh, perspective. You have a, a real opportunity. You work at a real estate company and you know the real estate business because you grew up in it. But you also know the sort of ins and outs of the New York startup ecosystem. Like this, the, the real estate technology is going to be a big thing over this coming decade. And 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 he was looking at investing in it for his fund. He's like, well, you should look at it too. So I sort of took that advice, and then and then I became uh, I, I I very very actively pursued sort of planting a flag and being the prop tech angel investor and building a diversified portfolio that was largely based on some of the issues I was having. I work just trying to do my job, just trying to be a good landlord and be a good property manager and be a good facilities manager and interact with contractors and close deals on the purchase side or, or, or selling real estate. All the sort of problems I had, I, I, I've always been trying to find technology to fix them. And so that was sort of fast forward to when I met Aaron and, and I'll pass the baton to him. When I, when I met him in 2014, I had built up this sort of portfolio of PropTech related angel investments and a, a, a reputation as someone to go to who understood sort of startup type economics, you know, convertible notes and valuation caps and all of those things, but also knew what real estate was, knew what a cap rate was, knew what NOI was, knew what a subcontractor was. Um, and, and, and back then, there just weren't a lot of people who had both of those things going. And so when I met Aaron, uh, who, who, who had also been in a similarly circuitous kind of real estate and tech career, uh, uh, we kind of bonded and, 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 and we realized there would be an opportunity to sort of take the stuff that we've been doing as individuals, you know, for, for, for years at that point and, and, and team up to institutionalize it and, and grow it. 
I love it. Aaron, before we move over to you, Zach, you said one thing that you have a lot of humility. You said, I couldn't build a tech company or I, I couldn't scale it. Was that more a reflection of within or you just weren't in the right industry or you just realized you weren't the person to, to build big companies? Yeah, I realized I don't I don't have and, and, and this is something we, we we look for, you know, often in our CEOs. I didn't have a product process and I didn't have a mentality. And so I had read Lean Startup and all, and, and that's what and I, I, I teach at Columbia, and I, I sort of teach a variation of the Lean Startup in the, the book that Aaron and I wrote, PropTech 101, is, 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 is essentially a, a PropTech-specific. So I know the methodology. I just was challenging for me to practice it where, where I couldn't. I had this idea of the product I wanted to build, but I was only building it for myself as the customer. And then what I what I re- sort of refused to allow myself to realize was that at the end of the day, everybody I spoke to said they wanted this product. This was it was a it was an app that you would download and do these audio walking tours of, of, of New York was what the travel of product was. But then we had a we were funding that through a, a pretty good in person you know standard kind of walking tour business. So you know I realized that no one really wanted the product that I had in my head that everybody wanted. And certainly no one was willing to pay for it at the time. And so I realized that it was it was not necessarily that I would never be able to build a technology company or, or in that way, but that this, that this as a technology company wasn't with me at the helm was really not going to be long-term successful. And then the other component of it was the in-person walking tour business while it was financially successful to have to scale that. And I knew this industry very well. I would have had to sacrifice the quality because there just aren't that many really talented licensed tour guides in New York who are able to do tours in the way that I want them done, which is sort of a mix of pop culture, history, food. And, and most guys are either really good on sort of pop culture and taking you to cool places and some guides are like amazing on history but they can't you know if you if if, if, if they're like well i want to just go shopping today they like wouldn't be able to help you yep yep you know like so so i knew i couldn't scale that business either the in-person side of my business and and so i was good at the consulting work and i was good at being an angel investor and i could feel you know more confident in my ability at, at 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 both of those things, and then I would say when I when I joined Millennium, I was able to execute, but I never managed sort of large teams myself. I managed large teams of consultants, you know, often fifteen people deep, but they weren't directly reporting to me. And I never built any products per se, but I was very aggressive in testing and piloting uh, technology, and that was part of the appeal of you know having me as an angel investor was I would you know I would definitely be one of your first uh, beta customers too. And I was, I was actively doing a bunch of workflows that would be relevant to your product. Got it. So Aaron, what's your story? Oh man, mine's pretty simple, but I appreciate you asking. I'm humbled. <laughs> I should have gone first because uh, uh, it's a tough act to follow. I'm uh you know, I'm just a, I'm just a Midwestern guy in New York city from <laughs> Chicago, uh, born and raised. University of Illinois undergrad, and then straight into the real estate business with Cushman and Wakefield for many years. Uh, kind of a combination of my growing up very entrepreneurial kind of world, I've always having run some business and family members who have run businesses and had done a lot of sales during school and stuff. So it was it was great to get into a big uh, international real estate organization. I quickly was shipped off to New York, uh, where I built the beginnings of my uh, foundation of the real estate career uh, with a top group out of Manhattan. And then uh, they shipped me off to Russia after that, where I was helping build up the Russia, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine region. And I became a partner at Cushman and Wakefield there in the European operation. And the swan song for that 10-year run in real estate came as I was running the Chicago and Midwest business, repatriating back after uh, I had my first kid. And uh, I spent a couple of years almost there uh, leading the Midwest. That was a great real estate run for me. I had made several angel investments um, as as the years went on in Europe and 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 the states. One of them was a was a tech startup 
was very friendly with some of the board members and got to know the team and joined the board and became a co-investor and, and started talking about uh, putting more capital in and leading around. And, and the founders were, were looking for some extra help to build a business. And, and I realized over the years, that's really what I love doing. We made a deal for me to kind of run the business. And I jumped in as CEO and we built that up. That was a lot of fun. That was cross-border e-commerce. It had nothing to do with real estate whatsoever. So that was a kind of version two of Aaron's adult career. And then uh, we sold that business off in 2014. And I moved back east to be near my uh, kids' grandparents and the New Jersey, you know, tri-state area here in New York. And I had, you know, kind of two careers and was ready to reinvent myself. Uh, you know, real estate and tech. Well, why don't we figure out what's at the intersection of those two things? Um, and when you start asking that question in New York City in 2014, I can tell you that you get a bunch of uh, arrows pointing directly at Zach Arendt. Um, So the more I started to explore the space and get educated, the more I realized that there was one person who had all the answers and knew all the people and had done all the investments. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun to to pick his brain. And you know, we started workshopping together the concept of an organization that would build into the space some connective tissue um, and, and and leverage the opportunities that we were both seeing and taking advantage of. Uh, certainly Zach was, and I was starting to smell smell the opportunity in a big, big way. So we decided to partner up on 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 Metaprop, and that was you know kind of end of 2014, and we launched in 2015, and the rest is history. So that's the background. But you know, I think what's common and interesting is we've got this overlap of uh, real estate, the tech, and investments. Um, so that's uh, you know kind of kind of core DNA for for these two fellows. I love it. So so 2014 prop tech was. I, I mean, it's fair to say was uh, in its very, very much infancy. Y'all came together. What was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back that y'all are like, we're going to raise a institutional style fund and and get going? Was there a certain deal that came up, or y'all just over lots of conversations said, let's do this? The real uh, answer is uh, that Zach brought it up and said he always wanted to do a venture fund. We were in the process of working out how to invest in our first round of investments together, which were which were graduates or soon to be graduates at that point of our first Metaprop Accelerator at Columbia University program. So that was the real catalyst straw that broke the camel's back is we had to we had to write checks and uh, we had to figure out, you know, do we want to just, you know, go go pro rata into these um do we want to syndicate to others do we do we want to you know pull them together in an llc do we and zach said well why don't we do a fund we've always wanted to do a fund and then you know that was that was really the seed of the idea um and you know right time right place good team and uh, a lot of people helping us along the way you know we created from scratch the investment management business that is now our primary modus operandi how large was that first fund? And as you look at it today, and we can talk about the second and third funds in a bit, but how large was the first fund? And maybe what are some things looking back that you learned during that period that maybe you didn't expect before you all decided to uh, to raise a fund? First fund was a couple million bucks. And it was really just the, the aggregation and institutionalization of our angel activities. Then a chance for us to, you know, work through the partnership dynamic that hadn't really had investment up until that point and, and kind of later in 2015 had, you know, we hadn't built the muscle yet. So this was a perfect kind of playground for us uh, with our own money and with other folks' money, but, you know, with, with the building the infrastructure necessary to be really good at this long term. And we made some really great investments. Thanks to Zach. Um, we had a lot of fun and and we really you know made a ton of mistakes none of which you know sank the ship of course you know there were more there were more opportunity cost mistakes you know not organizing uh, things things well not really understanding yet you know how to have the the formal processes in place to perfect our craft because we were still learning our craft you know we didn't one example is we didn't we didn't reserve any capital for follow on um, and that first fund, you know, we just, the money just flew out the door into these great entrepreneurs' hands. And that's really proven nice. So, I mean, we learned a whole heck of a lot. And was, I think probably, the, if I may speak for both of us, the most important thing we learned is that we needed a lot of help. 
and that as good as we were at the things that we were doing, you know, I'll argue best in the world, you know, in our in our particular niches and areas of expertise, the idea of managing capital professionally in a early stage venture capacity, you know, seed fund is is tricky stuff and and we need some firepower here to be able to to do what it started to look like we we we, we kind of come upon here in more and more opportunity and that's you know that's when we brought in zach schwarzman and we were fortunate enough that he couldn't escape zach's grasp and uh and then you know that that was really the beginning of of metaprop the the investment manager and 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 proper fund right i mean we, we, fund was great but when zach came on board with you know he kind of hit the brakes and said whoa, whoa 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 guys let's let's evaluate everything we're doing here and let's set ourselves up for success in the long run and do it right and that was great uh so that was off to the races from that point. Did Zach have a VC background or an institutional money management background or something? Oh yeah, yeah. Zach, Zach. I mean, Zach. You can tell him a story about you know how how you guys um, connected in business school and all that. But you know, you know, Zach was Zach was a proper seed fund venture capitalist in New York City. Right? So that was a big deal for us to to be able to bring in some of that caliber of talent. Yeah, I had gone to school with him and we were in that same class together uh, where I got that advice to become a prop tech investor. And so I was known to all of my CDS classmates as the person that they would call uh, if they were evaluating one of these deals. So that's how we stayed in touch after business school. And uh, he was a principal at a fund called Gotham Ventures. It looked like the they, they weren't going to raise another fund so you know we he had the opportunity to join us and he'd always had a passing interest in real estate like many people do his mom's actually a real estate agent for many years up in greenwich connecticut having actually her best year ever uh because of uh, uh certain dynamics that i'm sure you've spoken about on this podcast before but uh what we found compelling about Zach was he had actually experienced in verticalized sector-specific venture capital at the seed stage. So before he was at Gotham, he did a stint at this fund called Learn Capital, which was an edtech fund. He had an idea that this sector specificity was going to be a winning strategy. You know, he joined us in 2016. So we've now all been investing together for at least four years um, on our investment committee. But yeah, so we liked we liked that aspect of it as, as well of of the background. Yeah, we it was it was very natural to start working together because we'd already we'd been sharing these prop tech deals for so long. Like uh, uh, Gotham Ventures was generalist fund, and and they wanted exposure. Like many, like we've seen pretty much every you know Sand Hill Road and Boston and New York venture fund do. That's a generalist. They want you know somewhere between five to twenty five percent of exposure into prop tech and construction tech. So. You know, we benefited greatly from from maintaining good relationships with the with the broader VC community at large. Um, but yeah, that was you know the, the graduation. I would say from fund one to fund two. You know, we started doing things like leading rounds, right, which we'd never done before, which comes with its own sort of processes and protocols. We started serving on boards, uh, which we hadn't done before. Um, which comes with a, a sort of new set of processes and protocols. We had we started to have a much more organized approach uh, to portfolio construction theory. Uh, and Zach is uh, he's a fellow in this uh, the Kaufman Fellowship. It's called. It's like the Rhodes Scholarship for venture. And so we 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 are able to tap into not just a network of hundreds and hundreds of the top VCs globally, but they also do these information sharing sessions. So 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 we have a, a up to date research on what the most successful strategies are for for how to how to set up a portfolio uh, for success and those were things that we were we were certainly thinking about when when it was you know just us investing out of fund one but we hadn't we hadn't codified we hadn't institutionalized it you know now we're at a place where you know we're still learning and, and growing and improving every day but we are an institutional grade venture capital investment manager how large was your second fund just for the record? 40 million. Just to paint a kind of a broad brush across the industry, how much uh, is being invested in prop tech kind of globally? Do you guys have like a number for how much money's uh, going into this space now, now that we're in 2020? Yeah, in 2013, you know, we like to say 
when the space wasn't even the space and prop tech wasn't a term, certainly not in North America, at least, um, you know, looking seven, eight hundred million dollars of venture money coming in now, now, you know, fast forward to where we are, you know, maybe 12 billion or so. So it's wow. really been a rocket ship. Yep. How many deals do y'all see a year versus how many you ultimately invest in? Part of what we do, which is is not, not the easiest part um, for sure, is say no. And you got to be really, really disciplined in this world in order to be successful. We, we pass on 99.5% of the opportunities that come to us. And, and the, good, you know, the good and bad of it is we see a lot of opportunities. We have a real kind of sourcing and distribution machine that allows us to see you know a couple hundred plus new prop tech um, startups every month and so building a machine to be able to process that in addition to source that is is a, is a is a very important function of our strength as an investment manager and venture capitalist are there certain things about a business or about uh, you're seeing a couple hundred a month is there something that a couple things that stand out that get you to a quick no that you don't have to spend more than maybe an hour or a day kind of looking at it before you're like this is a no zach you want to talk about your uh, your magic in the quick filter I'm a, yeah i'm a i'm a human quick no that is that is uh my job one of my jobs within the organization so everything that gets sourced that looks remotely compelling gets sent to me I, i've just seen I, I put in, you know, whatever Malcolm Gladwell, that 10,000 hours, I've put in way more than that into prop tech, into looking at decks and email blurbs. And, oh, and look, I, I, I don't get it right all the time. You know, there's stuff that I've, that I've done a quick note to that actually deserved a deep look or maybe even diligence or maybe even warranted our investment, right? So it's not perfect, but my pattern recognition, you know, at this point, I've seen more of these decks probably than any human being in the world. So I'm able to very quickly DQ stuff. And then I think the strength, another sort of strength of our team is if if we think it looks interesting, we're able to very quickly route it to someone who can really tell us if it's interesting or not. And and that's the benefit of you know having a you know decade of building a sort of global network of prop tech enthusiasts. But I think quick filtration is 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 very important. You know, you, when you run a practice like ours, where you're where you're looking at 200 things a month and you know tracking 8,000 companies at any given time globally, you need to be very draconian with um, the quick pass. You know, and uh, and you need to be you know respect. If you've taken up time with the entrepreneur, you need to be respectful of their time and and do the pass gracefully. But if you've never spoken to the entrepreneur before and you really are not interested, you need to be very quick to just let them know that this is not of interest to you. And, you know, thank you for sharing it with me. So that's the that's the the sort of short answer to the filtration. And then it goes through multiple layers. You know, if a company doesn't have a product, right, that's not an immediate no, but that, you know, means they should probably have a lower valuation or they should have at least some thought about what they're building and some sort of level of mock-ups or stuff. so so there's always like if you look at it like a ladder or you know like a christmas tree at the top it's like okay we're closing and wiring money there are all these points where you can get kind of knocked off a, a, a rung right and and that's how we approach our diligence process we approach it with enthusiasm about pretty much every deal we see and healthy skepticism but also the ability to completely change our mind quickly we always joke you know uh strong opinions weekly held right like i think this is the greatest company in the world i'm going to recommend it at investment committee i'm going to write a memorandum about it until somebody tells me otherwise and then i'm going to listen to that and even if i've spent two weeks of my life diving into this company if i really agree with that statement i need to be able to drop on a on a dime and cut bait I think one of the things we've gotten better at over the years is cutting bait quickly and, you know, doing it respectfully with the entrepreneurs. That's a really important, important thing, too. And, you know, putting the putting the entrepreneur, you know, first and, and, and we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And what we've learned, if you focus on the success of the entrepreneurs, 
and empowering them, you know, typically everything else can fall into place over time. For sure. If, if a founder is listening to this and you were going to give an answer to this question, just think of the founder in mind as like, what do good founders do or what are best practices that you see that help the companies that you ultimately invest in? What are they doing right that you see maybe other founders that might have a great product, but they just are just bad at trying to raise money, I guess? Like, what do good people, good founders that ultimately raise money, what are they doing well while they're raising money? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, to your point, some founders are just great at raising money. Those founders are always going to raise money, whether they have a great product, a mediocre product, or no product for for that matter. When we encounter, we're actually doing a deal right now with an excellent product-minded founder who is not particularly great at fundraising. The first question you ask is, can this person be okay with not being that great at fundraising and then A, try to get better and B, recruit accordingly a co-founder who is good at fundraising? And do they have the, you know, we spoke about humility earlier. Do they have the humility to be coachable to do that? Or are they arrogant and they just blame their lack of success on fundraising on everybody but themselves? Right? So that's the first thing I would want to know when I'm placed in front of a product-focused entrepreneur where I like the product, but I see that the entrepreneur is struggling to fundraise. Um, Similarly, we see all the time entrepreneurs that are maybe good at product, great at fundraising, and bad at sales. The same litmus test. Do you have the humility to admit you're bad at sales? Do you have the desire to improve at sales? Because as Aaron Block says all the time, it is not rocket science, right? It can be taught. We can't necessarily teach you to be like amazing at it, like top decile at it. But if you're the CEO, you can always bring on that CRO, that head of sales that is that person, right? So you don't need to be that, but you need to learn about it. You need to show a willingness to learn about it enough where you can go recruit that person. And then you need to show us that you're charismatic enough and your idea is good enough. And maybe if you're a product-based person, your product's good enough where you can bring a talented CRO, you can poach them from a company, right? You take, we do this all the time with our companies. um, And I'm not going to name, you know, who we poach them from, but we take big companies that are sort of scaled incumbents and we take their VP level talent Maybe they're fully vested on their equity. Maybe they're bored. Companies may be public or, you know, going to IPO soon. And we say, how, how do you want to be, you know, the CRO of a founding team? Or how do you want to be the chief product officer of a founding team? We have all the components ready. You know, we're just missing you. So, so the, the other litmus test is like, can you, along with our help, right, can you recruit a person of that caliber? So, so we don't view it. And this is something I, I try to drive home with our team almost weekly. Number one, if a deal doesn't have hair on it, right, then we're not probably not going to see it. Okay. Those are the deals, the deals in the upper echelon, you know, on, on, on Mount Olympus, those are taken on Mount Olympus, right? Metaprof gets what, you know, filters down to the, to the, to the mere mortals, right? So everything's going to have something wrong with it. Right. Maybe we think the TAM is too small, total adjustable market. Maybe we think the person doesn't know how to sell their product. Maybe we think the person can't isn't great at building a product. Maybe we think the person isn't great at fundraising. So the question always becomes number one, can can Metaprop do something here to round out this team? Can we help them recruit and help train them? Get them the consultants to train them, do the training ourselves, and also recruit the core members of the team. If the answer is no, then we walk. If the answer is yes, we think we can do that, and the founders pass the litmus tests where they show they're coachable and ready to go, then we're going to want to do the deal. So we're not looking for perfection. Yep. Do you require founders to have a co-founder? Like there has to be two at the head. I know a lot of VCs won't do deals unless there's two co-founders. No, we just did a deal. And last year we did a deal with a solo founder. And the first thing we did was work with uh, one of our favorite recruiting firms to recruit a really, really top tier co-founder who was a serial entrepreneur in the space. 
and they hit it off, and and that's I think going to be a potential fun returner uh, for us. But it's it's it is the exception to the rule, though. Right. Absolutely. 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 We like to back. We would much prefer to back a team. So they might not have a co-founder right out the the gate, but y'all do kind of require it along the process. So you're not going to let a solo founder run for years and years by themselves. I won't let a solo founder run for for a minute. Yeah, got it. Right. And this particular instance was a relationship we had had, both Zach and I had had for many years. So there was a very, very high level of trust with that entrepreneur. But that was the first thing we did. Right. And in most cases, per Aaron's point, we're going to ask that they do that in concert with the financing. Not that we make that contingent in our term sheets. We don't do business like that. But we say, look, we like your idea. We like what you're doing. We're interested in funding it. But you need to have this person on your team and then and then come back to us when you do. And then we'll write you a term sheet. And then that also when you when you challenge someone like that. Right. It shows who's a peak performer and who's willing to walk through walls to get their thing done. And who's just going to shrivel up when you say, you need, you know, because no one can build thing alone for the for forever. Right. I mean, recruiting is the most important thing a CEO can do. Do you all care whether they have a uh, real estate background or not? I mean, just from my limited experience and being in the real estate industry, I often see these products and the people that are creating them never had a real estate background to begin with. Uh, It's sometimes shocking to me the questions that people will ask me that are building like a property management software or something. Do you all care if they're coming from a real estate background or or not? Yeah, we, we much prefer it. We ideally prefer someone to have, and, and, and we're now in the benefits of a maturing ecosystem, we prefer to have a prop tech background. And that's now, so like if you, you know, had, so we're funding a business, for example, right now, the entrepreneur came out of Procore, right? So we have like, you know, specific prop tech experience. So you're well-rounded in, in yourself. I think if you don't have that, sort of second best thing is do you have this weird hybrid like Aaron and I do of prop and tech, right? Where you did some real estate related thing in your career, but you've also done something in like tech or startups or entrepreneurship. Then I think below that, we will still fund you. I can think of multiple, I can think of multiple instances, but you have to be insanely where you really are just an entrepreneur tech person and you don't have real estate experience per se, you need to show us that you have, again, a very inquisitive mind to learn and a, a not like fully formed ideas in your own head of how things should be necessarily. You should have a point of view. And it's it's our job to recruit that head of real estate for you all very, almost as quickly as possible. So that's something that, you know, Metaprof can offer as an entrepreneur. I would say below that type of person is the is the person who's only been in real estate and never been in startup entrepreneurship and tech, that person is typically very hard to train. I'd rather train a tech entrepreneur to do real estate than train a real estate person to be a tech entrepreneur. But we have funded those businesses too. But then obviously everything's opportunistic and every entrepreneur is different. But if I had to qualify it, that's how I would, that's how I'd qualify like, like, but you know, our strong, we're very, very lucky now that we've been in this space for so long where we have an increasing a number of entrepreneurs where they're serial entrepreneurs and they're coming back to us again. And they're either doing, you know, they're doing prop tech or they've even been in prop tech before they've been a senior VP of sales products, whatever, at a, you know, at a pro core, at a VTS, at a, real page, you know, stuff like that, which, which didn't, when I started the space in 2010, and there were only like two or three public, like that, that concept didn't even exist. So when someone comes up to me and they say, you know, what's the best way to start a prop tech company? I say, go work at, you know, go work at a prop tech company. Like a lot of them are hiring. There's a lot in our portfolio, thankfully that are hiring, like go do that for a couple of years. And then you know, if you want to get into prop tech VC or you want to get into prop tech entrepreneurship, like that's the best way to do that. But I couldn't tell people that even five years ago because there frankly just weren't enough opportunities, just weren't enough jobs yet. 
So I want you guys to take your humble hat off. If you funded a, the founders have made it through, they've raised money and you got to take your humble hat off. And I asked one of them, what is the value that Metaprop has given to you post funding? What would some of them say? I think some of them would say that we have transformed how they think about sales marketing and distribution as an organization. And then I think some others would say that we have made key introductions to them to customers that were sort of make or break for the trajectory of the business. And those are sort of two things that we can offer to an entrepreneur as a prop tech focused fund that I think other, you know, maybe generalist competitors cannot. But when we've moved the needle, it's been it's been in those particular categories. It's it's been focused on sales and distribution. And the Rolodex activity associated with that is a big part of it. The coaching part of that, right? Because because I can introduce you to 100, you know, landlords, but if I don't train you how to sell to them, you can't close a deal. And then the third leg of that stool is recruiting. So I'm not going to be your CRO. Right. I have a full time job. I, I'm a general partner of Metaprop. Right. So I can't be your CRO, but let's recruit you a CRO and let's recruit you SDRs and AEs under that CRO. And let's build a sales organization. And if your distribution is different, then let's build a marketing and advertising engine where we can have predictable revenue. And then let us leverage our Rolodex to get you those key introductions. And so it's, when those three things are all working, then it, it is frankly a beautiful thing. And there, there is nothing better than getting to put these wins on the board with entrepreneurs, uh, especially, especially when serving in a, in, a, in a board capacity where you can, you can see it you know, quarterly. How often do they reach out to you? Or are you reaching out to them? Like, what does that relationship look like? Is it weekly, monthly, quarterly, whenever? It depends. I think, you know, if it's a board relationship, it's sort of different, but it depends, you know, the way we run it. We, we, each of us, we have, um, and Aaron can speak more to, to some of the, this, the stuff we do for our startups, but we have a dedicated, uh, startup services function. Um, a lot of VC funds would call this platform. And then each of the partners has a specific book of entrepreneurs in the portfolio that are like their purview. And those check-ins happen, you know, anywhere between, I would say bi-weekly to quarterly, but there are particular instances where we, where those walls break down and, you know, I'm, I'm helping a company specifically that's in Aaron's book or Aaron's helping a company specifically that's in, you know, my book. Like if a company that, that is in Aaron's portfolio, you know, needs help with like a zoning type, they, they need access to a zoning attorney, right? Like I might get involved there, but if someone in my purview has like an HR uh, issue, I, I will, you know, most likely involve Aaron because, you know, I've never run large organizations and Aaron has. So we're, we're pretty flexible and fluid with the, with the cadence of communication. Aaron, you want to talk about sort of the, the, how we mechanize the, 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 the startup services function? Yeah, I think, uh, it's just important to focus on being great at a few good things, right? I mean, you gotta, you gotta be really narrow, we preach it and we try and practice it is pick a few things to be, you know, ninja like superstars to add the most value. They're going to have the biggest impact and, and then put a process in place and optimize for that, right. Scale it up. So for us, you know, getting strong leadership for this function that uh, really works hand in hand with our investment team to make sure that prior to a deal uh, during the negotiation with an entrepreneur and post um, close onboarding and and relationship scale up. There's someone who's accountable for helping carry their share of the load, particularly with a with a big portfolio like ours. You know, our vintages are are dozens and dozens of startups in each fund. So you can't be a great investor and a great startup supporter. Acquisitions and asset management on the real estate side, right? Are typically two teams, but they share a lot of competencies. So, you know, that's how we've specialized over the over the years. So, we, you know, we spent a lot of time helping, of course, with strategy and there's economies of scale of communications, right? And when we've got a great PR machine and a huge newsletter distribution, social channels, and all that, it's great for getting the word out. 
Um, but 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 you know what what they remember uh, the startups is is did they get new customers? Did they close more capital? And did they get the people they need in order to be successful? And and so you know we track and report on all of those metrics weekly and monthly. And you know nobody else does this, so there's no no one else to kind of gauge yourself against, right? This is pretty specialized work. So you know all we try and do is race faster and beat our own records here and add more value and be great partners and you know leverage leverage our own partners time my time zach's time zach's time so that we're doing the highest value conversations and the highest value activities at any given time while at the same time just flooding our our startups with the resources if they need them and staying the heck out of their way if they don't yep Y'all have on your website that like your LPs uh, represent over 15 billion square feet of real estate. There's no mandate that obviously any of those LPs use any of the portfolio investments that y'all make, but you do you just kind of use that as like, we have this whole world that you can talk to if we invest in you. Like, how do you think about that? Is you're getting the best of the entire real estate industry. Yeah, because Zach Aaron's on your cap table. It's yep. always been the case. Um, <laughs> that's a you know that's a that's a vanity metric. Mm-hmm. You know that's owned and managed real estate. You know obviously that's not an active sandbox for piloting and testing, but it is order of magnitude and directionally important to illustrate that you really are you know you're getting access and distribution that doesn't exist literally anywhere else um, um, at this stage in your in your development. So you know those folks don't have to pilot or test you know we've got every aspect of the real estate value chain covered in our lp base you know from from you know brokerage to construction to asset management to development you know we've got we've got all those folks and they're even in right the fact that they put in their capital to fund uh, alongside our own you know uh, is is indicative of an interest at a minimum um and and we try and give our entrepreneurs the best access we can and we try and give our LPs the best access we can and, and connect the dots wherever feasible, but it's certainly not a requirement. No. Yep. Maybe two more questions on kind of Metaprop as a business. And then I just want to talk a little bit kind of about the actual prop tech world and what you're seeing, but kind of two things. The first, what changes when you lead around versus just participating in a round? When we lead around, we'll typically take a board seat. So that changes. We'll negotiate the terms directly with the entrepreneur of the financing, um, meaning the valuation and, and uh, preferences, things like that. The sort of venture capital standard terms will be negotiated between us and the entrepreneur. It's also sort of tacitly understood in the industry that if you lead around, like you're gonna you're gonna not ditch that entrepreneur for the next round, right? Like you're gonna sort of have capital available if the company needs to bridge where if things don't go so rosy, you're kind of there, you know, come 12 months, 18 months later. Um, so those are the sort of three things that are different. I would say we try to have follow on capital available, you know, where we can to all our entrepreneurs, whether we're leading or not, but there is the, the understanding that, you know, you, you have this sort of additional uh, responsibility. You don't want to ever throw good money after bad. But those are the slightly different dynamics. Um, other than that, we don't approach it differently at all. You get access to the same team at Metaprop, the same uh, network. You know, frankly, in some cases, the same amount of of time from from the partners. You know, I have some entrepreneurs where I'm not on the board of, but we talk all the time. I have some entrepreneurs where I am on the board, and it's maybe you know one once every other week we check in, and then obviously we we, we get into it around the board meeting. So it, you know, it's the flavor to Aaron's point. You know, it's it's not, and there's been a lot of like, you know, I don't know if you've seen Twitter recently, but but there's there's been a lot going on with with you know board members and VCs kind of thinking that they run the company, and that is not what we want to be. If everything is firing on all cylinders, we are not going to look for problems that don't exist. But but if if there is something that's sales and distribution and marketing related that I see going on with you that I think I can fix, like, you better believe I'm going to come in there and try and fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it, it, it's, it's not that that's not always the prettiest process. Like, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. And, you know, it's it's some some real grown up stuff. So so we're not scared of that either. 
And we're also not scared to ask for help. You know, if we see something, for example, where the the product's just not 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 humming, or the the technology stack is not where it needs to be from a scalability perspective, you know, we co-invest in all our deals with funds that have that are that are more sort of plugged into the Sandhill Road and Silicon Valley ecosystem where they can come and recruit, you know, top-notch Python engineers for companies or, you know, incredible, you know, visual UI UX people. We have done stuff like that in the past, but but few and far between as our focus, as I mentioned, is, you know, is sales and distribution. Okay, the last question on kind of the business, and this maybe strays a little bit away from the VC side, but y'all also offer consulting and advisory services for real estate businesses. Kind of what what does a typical project look like or what are you doing on that side of the business? Well, we offer those services um, as a value add to our strategically minded real estate partners who invest with us. Got it. Funds. So it's exclusively uh, leveraging all of the experience. We, we had a four-fee consulting practice in the very early days of Metaprop around the same time we, we brought Zach Shoresman on. And we, we realized that investment management is our business, not consulting, but that we are sure a heck of a lot better at our business having this competency deployed for our LPs. It makes them move faster, pilot test, invest more, faster, better than they would have without us. And it certainly makes us better investors being plugged in deeply with industry. You know, we know a lot, but it takes a village to be great at seed, particularly in a space this big and this broad. And, um, you know, we leverage those relationships all day long. And frequently that's from from the consulting work we do with them. Is there a certain asset type that is getting more investment, maybe like multifamily or office that is getting more investment than others? Like, is there a, where's the majority of money going to, or is it kind of distributed out evenly as y'all see it? No, I think people are now in prop tech gravitating to make investments in the real estate asset classes that are less impaired or ideally the ones that are thriving. So there's been a big focus on single family, been on a tear, you know, from a brick and mortar perspective this year, there's been a big focus on logistics, warehousing related real estate. There's been a big um, focus I've seen, you know, starting to be a focus on on senior housing, assisted living. There has been, I would say, just because of the sort of COVID-19 disruption to that to that industry that was that was sort of so palpable. Um, I would say the 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 there has not been a lot of action in office tech, in retail tech, hotel tech uh, this year because uh, the 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 purchasers uh, would be purchasers of that software are you know either unsure of what their focus of uh, what their future holds or sort of waiting for a change in the in the environment whether that's through a vaccine or or some other break to revive those conversations that they would be having with software vendors. So we have sort of moved, you know, our, our practice, we're still very focused on the same trends that we started seeing a decade ago, you know, trend toward digitization, trend toward enterprise software workflows, trend toward uh, computer vision, artificial intelligence, natural language processing. But we are certainly leaning into single family a lot this year. We're continuing to lean into construction. Because there, while there will be fewer construction starts, um, a lot of essential infrastructure, data centers, other types of infrastructure, healthcare uh, are going to be starting construction, and all the construction that was started pre-COVID uh, needs to finish. So we believe. So we're we're still very focused. We, we have been for years, but we're still very very focused on the the construction side uh, of what we do. I'd still like to do, frankly, I'd like to do a contrarian. Uh, retail deal. I'd like to do an office deal before we close out the year. I just, if you look at our current pipeline, the bulk of the stuff is single family, multifamily uh, construction uh, related, I would say. And the single family, multifamily stuff, is that like smart home type technology or what kind of technology around single family and multifamily? It varies. So we we invested in a um, technology enabled fencing and paving a contracting firm. We invested in a residential brokerage platform that enables uh, a for sale by owner. We're investing in a in a sort of Redfin competitor in uh, Korea, actually, 
we also made an investment in a accounting technology for multifamily uh, companies. So, so it it is it is diversified as it relates to those asset types, the type of uh, uh, things that we've done this year, and not necessarily smart home driven. I think smart home we've done some of it in the past. I think it's challenging. You know, you have these really really big players, and a lot of try and copy you if you have any modicum of success. And you're kind of captive to selling to them as your exit. Although we have had some, you know, success with it over the years. We backed a company called Flow, uh, which was a, a smart home plumbing tech, which was successful. Uh, Latch is, uh, is is doing very well on the, on the smart home front, although they really have an enterprise. It's not a direct consumer smart home play. So we've done we've done we've done a fair bit of it, but 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 never you know never more than uh than five percent of the of the overall uh, fund allocation. Got it. To into smart home. Yeah. Is PropTech aiding at all in kind of the getting back to the office and or work from home? Like, are you seeing anything kind of there that's developing? Yeah, very much so. We're looking at a lot of companies that do sort of cleaning audits related to getting back to work. We've looked at companies that do you know thermal temperature scanning um, for back to work. Um, we've looked at companies doing uh, queuing, you know, for retail uh, and and elevatoring. So we've looked at quite a bit of that type of tech, and then we've looked at technology that leverages data to figure out like what does the new distributed world look like, right? Because because the idea that everyone's only working from home is silly. Like people will still need offices, uh, and there's going to be this sort of potentially hub and spoke model. So what does that look like for for real estate data? So we're very excited about that as well as it relates to to back to work, you know, and the, and the sort of new paradigm of work from anywhere. Yep. All right. Two more questions here. We'll dive into a couple of fun personal ones and then we'll bring it home. But like when you think of that thermal, the thermal imaging and you're hearing that right now and you're thinking, you know, y'all are making investments that could take, you know, five, seven, 10 years to harvest. Does that strike you as something that might be very short-sighted that it's something we'll be doing for, you know, maybe the next year or two, but then we kind of won't be doing it? Or from what y'all are seeing, do you think this is kind of a permanent change that we're just going to see in society going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we we months ago, uh, sort of in the thick of the, the the lockdown, we put together this deck that I think Zach Schwarzman presented two hundred times in 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 twenty days. He was he was pretty burnt out, but um, it had four quadrants, and one was like this thing is accelerate. One of the quadrants was this type of tech is accelerating because of COVID, but it's not going to stop. Another quadrant was. This is decelerating because of COVID. And another quadrant we had, this is accelerating because of COVID, but it's likely going to stop. So when we look at technology like thermal scanning, and one of the benefits of, of what's so cool and, and, and we're, we're so grateful about being able to work at Metaprop and what Aaron was talking about with our, our innovation service practice with our LPs, is we get to look at thermal scanners because our LPs need thermal scanners in their build, buildings yesterday. Right? They need to get these in order to reopen and get people to feel safe back to work in certain instances. So we can do a deep dive into that sector, and then we can also decide, get really educated on it, and then we can also decide that, you know what, this might be a fad or this might be a sector that's going to be controlled exclusively by incumbents, and therefore there's no startup opportunity there. And now we've just, not only have we helped our LPs, by sourcing a good piece of tech for them for the near term, but we potentially save them a lot of money by not making an investment in something that might go away after, to your point, two to three years, right? Where where there's, or at least there's risk, right? Maybe it stays, maybe it doesn't, but we couldn't get, we didn't back any of those companies because we couldn't get a constructive answer internally on that. We couldn't get consensus on that, right? So I think, but the stuff that, you know, COVID is accelerating and, and, and we have conviction that even in a vaccine era, this stuff is the new norm. Like using, I'll give an example, using um, software to detect if you have deviations um, in what you're building on a construction site. Like, yeah, that's accelerated immensely because of COVID. But is that really going to get ripped out when people start going back to the job site more? I don't think so. They're going to be wed to the fact that they can now detect deviations from their computer and it's all tracked and logged. So that's the stuff we're really excited about. 
And the stuff that is put on ice due to COVID, right? Like the hotel tech stuff, we're still excited about it. And we still have check-ins with those entrepreneurs every quarter. And we try to, you know, be supportive of them and try to earn their trust and and, and a potential seat at the table the next, the next time they're raising. But we're not looking to aggressively pursue, you know, writing a term sheet for, for a company like that necessarily. Got it. I'm so jealous of y'all's everyday job. Y'all get to see, y'all get to peek into the future before a lot of people get to uh, experience it. If you just had to make a statement of something that maybe a listener, you know, five or 10 years from now, this will be going on in the world. But if you listen to it today, it just sounds crazy. Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, I think they're going to be on Mars. And so that'll be pretty weird. Okay. Elon Musk is driving that ship. Aaron? I think, I think we're going to get there. Aaron is, are you, uh, is that your prediction or is your prediction Venus or Pluto? Make predictions. I support the guy who makes the predictions. You got the smartest guy in the space on the phone. I love it. I'm going to yield. I'm going to yield to the, to the expert. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, all right. Last question on investments. Every VC has an investment that got away. The guy that didn't put money in Uber or Airbnb or something like that. Do you all have an investment that got away that keeps you up at night? Yeah. The one, do you know the Katy Perry song? The one that got away? I, I'll listen to it after I this. Have, I have many. I have many of those. You know, Bessemer famously has an entire website devoted to it. It's, it's their anti-portfolio. So, and it's hilarious if you haven't gone through it. The stories, yeah, we, I mean, we have a lot. I mean, I could have been, when I was still angel investing, I would say I could have been way more aggressive trying to stuff money into companies like Hightower, companies like BTS, companies like Juniper Square. You know, I I was friends with the founders, but I could have called the founders every day until they allowed me to put $50,000 into their business just to get me to stop calling them. And I didn't do that. So I would say for me personally, those are some of my biggest FOMO ones. You know, I would say missing out when I probably could have could have convinced them to take my money, missing out on Hightower and DTS early on, I would say would be my number one. But I have many. I have many in my own anti-portfolio. And, um, you know, one of the things that Aaron and I want to do building our own organization is that if we have an anti-portfolio, you know, build up such a great relationship with those entrepreneurs where if we have a really long-term view on PropTech, right, we have a multi-decade view on PropTech, I can back their third business. So um, we keep our anti-portfolio, I would say, we're, we're in contact with a lot of those people because you just never know in this business and you never know. When, you know, you never know when you when we might have a growth equity vehicle that might be able to back a company or private equity vehicle right down the road. And you never know when um, they might, you know, sell their company and start a brand new company from scratch and want to get that seated. Like you just just don't know. I mean, our, our one of the most successful deals we've had to date, this company attentive, they just raised capital two point two billion dollar valuation. We got in at the seed. That was a serial entrepreneur. I backed him in his first business uh, called called Tap Commerce. So, so you know, if you can stay in the game long enough and meet enough of these serial entrepreneurs and, and try and do right by them, like, you know, good things can happen. Do y'all have morning routines? Something that gets you going during the day? I don't have a morning routine. Okay. Uh, my morning is pretty crazy focused on getting my kids fed and out the door to school. I'm grateful that um, they're in school some of the time. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that is, that, I would say that is my morning routine. Yeah, I work out usually in the mornings, take the dog on the multi-mile walk, listen to the podcast like Chris Powers. I love it. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're starting your day off right, Aaron. I need to tell more people that. All right, my final question. If y'all had a billboard on a major highway where you live, and you could put anything on that billboard for the world to see. Is there something that you'd put on it? I would put vote. Vote. Okay. Zach? I would put our book, PropSec 101. It's a best-selling book. It deals with the uh, ins and outs 
of uh, of PropTech, of, of our approach to it, the industry, uh, the constituents, and it's uh, it's just a fantastic read. So I would want a billboard promoting uh, uh, that uh, wonderful thing. I love it. And if people want to reach you, how can they get a hold of y'all? You can uh, email me, and we do respond to uh, cold emails. My email is uh, uh, zarons at metaprop.vc. And if you're an entrepreneur, you know, let me know what kind of problem you're trying to solve. All right, guys. Thank you uh, so much for taking an hour of your day to, to chat with me. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We love you, Chris Powers. Let's do some deals together. We will. We, we, we will. Love you guys. Have a great rest of your Friday. All right, buddy. Y'all be good. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.